Hi everyone, Sarah Schaefer here. Thanks for checking out Art History Happy Hour. The episode that follows is back from when our podcast was called State of the Arts, and you can now find our episode blog and other resources, including a link to our Patreon page at arthistoryhappyhour.com. Welcome back to State of the Arts, the podcast that explores how art and its history shape our world today. I'm Tina Rivers-Ryan. And I'm Sarah Schaefer. Those of you who are subscribed may have noticed that we've been quiet for a few weeks. Our apologies about that. Um, We've had a, a, a bit of a hectic schedule, both of us, as we were wrapping up the semester. Um... I also personally have had a lot of visitors coming into town. And of course, when you live in New York, one of your main responsibilities as a card-carrying New Yorker is to act as unofficial tour guide for all of your friends and relatives that inevitably come through town. I'm sure everyone else who listens who's from New York knows exactly what I'm talking about. It's a great honor to be able to show people around the city, but after a while, you sort of get tired of taking people to the same old spots or you know, to, to look at the same works of art. Obviously, we always make our relatives and friends look at art with us. So uh, the past few weeks, I've been thinking about things to show people that are, uh, quote unquote, off the beaten path. So um, my favorite works of art or spaces at the Met that, you know, aren't in sort of the top 10 list of things to see in all of the guidebooks. Um, And this led to a dialogue between the two of us about our favorite spots in New York City. And since it is um, summer... Finally, although the day that we're recording, it's actually 60 degrees. The weather's been completely schizophrenic. But anyway, we think it's summer. We figured that some of you might have plans to come through New York at some point in the next few weeks or few months. And so we wanted to go ahead and give you a quick introduction to some of our favorite spots that you maybe don't know about. And of course, um, this is a uh, an episode that um, has no expiration date. The places that we're going to be talking about are all um, hopefully going to be pretty much permanently on view. So feel free to bookmark it for your next trip. And I have a somewhat different reason for ruminating on New York City a lot lately because I'm going to be moving to Milwaukee uh, in August for a job. So I've been thinking about some of my favorite places and places I want to visit before I leave. So multiple reasons for focusing on the city and our our favorite haunts uh, for this episode. I'm going to start um, by talking about a place that's quite off the beaten path, literally. Um, This is the Staten Island Farm Colony. So in order to get there, you have to, uh, well, if you're coming from Manhattan, which uh, many people who are coming to visit the city would be, you have to take the Staten Island Ferry, uh, grab a bus to the center of the island, and sneak through a hole in uh, the chain link fence of a residential neighborhood. Now, I should preface by saying um, I'm not sure at this point how legal it is to do this, so I'm not actually uh, suggesting that you go and do it yourself, but um, definitely go and, and look up pictures of this site, uh, which we'll post on our website. So once you get through this chain link fence, you you sort of wander through this heavily forest landscape and and come upon uh, a 45-acre farm colony or former farm colony. Um, this was a site that was established as the Richmond County Poorhouse around 1830. Later, when uh, the boroughs were incorporated, so when New York City became uh, Manhattan, the Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island, the city uh, designated it the New York City Farm Colony, although it is still popularly referred to as the 
Staten Island farm colony. Um, and this sort of, of institution, poor farms as they were called, were popular in the 19th and, and early 20th centuries. Um, they were generally local government-funded institutions, primarily for uh, the elderly and the disabled. And it, it was seen as a place to give these communities the opportunity to work, um, have decent housing, and actually take part in the management of the facilities, which in and of itself could be a sort of form of, of rehabilitation for, for people who are disabled or um, had mental illness, which was another big uh, community within this institution. By the mid-19th century, most of the residents um, were elderly, although at times the colony merged with the nearby Seaview Hospital, which was a leading institution in the treatment of tuberculosis. And this site was uh, the subject of numerous tragedies as well as urban legends, which is, is part of the reason um, there's developed this whole sort of culture of, of, of interest um, around it. Um, one particularly disturbing story describes a, a young boy and an old man who went walking together in the woods after which the boy went missing. And this came, soon became associated with um, a local legend of a serial killer known as Cropsy. And from what I've read, Cropsy is just sort of um, a, a, a figure that there's there's no evidence that this person ever existed, but became sort of a boogeyman um, for local residents in order to get kids to not go out late at night or eat their vegetables or whatever. It was also the site, the Staten Island Farm Colony was also the site of a number of child murders uh, in the 1970s and 80s, so not, didn't have the best reputation. With the implementation of so social security in the 20th century and then later Lyndon Johnson's Great Society, um, the number of elderly people in the United States who were in poverty greatly diminished. And so by 1975, um, the farm colony shut down completely. And that was when it started, started to um, fall into decay and ruin. They didn't tear down the buildings. They, they remained and just nature slowly overtook them. Um, 11 of those buildings still remain and have become the destination of urban explorers, graffiti artists, a lot of paintball enthusiasts, um, ravers, partiers, all kinds of different types of people. Um, it, the buildings that exist are dormitories, hospital units, um, an old kitchen, and they're completely sort of overgrown, vandalized, in some cases collapsed. So if you're the type of person who doesn't really enjoy abandoned uh, insane asylum movies or the like, this might not be a place that you would want to go visit. Um, but if you are a fan of, of sort of ruinous structures and seeing that meeting of, um, of nature and man-made structures, um, it, it, it could be worth, worth a visit if you are able to sort of sneak your way in. Um, although you should probably go soon because it will not exist as in its current state for much longer. Um, there have been various attempts to renew it in the past 40 years, but in 2014, the, the Landmarks Preservation Commission approved the conversion of this of this site, of this campus, into an elderly residential complex, which will be called the Landmark Colony. Five of the remaining buildings will be stabilized and rehabilitated for um, residential use and for some storage, and one will be uh, converted into a greenhouse and garden, and the rest will be um, completely demolished. So some of it will remain remain, but not in the state that it's been in for the past 40 years, basically since um, the complex shut down in 1975.
if you are the kind of person who is into creepy old institutions um, and haunted movies and stuff, then I can recommend one activity that is absolutely legal here in New York. The French artist J.R., uh, known for uh, making street art around the world, uh, was recently invited by the National Park Service to create an installation at Ellis Island inside the former hospital um, that's been abandoned for decades. And this is the hospital where immigrants who had any issues, you know, everything from pregnancy to emotional disorders to um, leprosy or what have you, this is where all of those people were held, basically, while they got their health in order. It's like I said, it's been abandoned. It's very spooky. And what JR has done, it's a continuation of a project he's been doing, um, again, sort of around the world where he goes to a site and he looks up historical photographs. So for this, he went to to DC, I believe, and looked up historical photos of immigrants coming into Ellis Island. And he has pasted these photographs, huge reproductions of them all around the hospital grounds. So you'll sort of turn the corner and there will be, you know, these like immigrant children just sort of staring at you from inside an abandoned hospital room. And, you know, there's, you know, the one creaky bed left over in the corner or whatever. And, you know, a lot of the windows are blown out. And so there's just these howling noises and there's dust that circles around. And um, it's really spooky but also very conceptually, um, I think, interesting and, and helps you sort of empathize with the immigrant experience in a new way. Just north of both Ellis Island and Staten Island is the southern tip of Manhattan Island. And that very southernmost region is now a park we refer to as Battery Park that um, is a very historical site um, that now has been uh, filled in with a lot of landfill. Um, but immediately north of Battery Park is an area called Bowling Green. And this, in fact, is the oldest public park in New York City. It's been a parade ground since the colonial era. And uh, at Bowling Green, uh, just above the, the 4-5 Bowling Green Station, is a building now known as Alexander Hamilton U.S. Customs House. This building is one of my um, favorite spots to view public sculpture in New York City because it is way down in the financial district. Uh, not a lot of people necessarily make it down there. I mean, it's a good, I don't know, let's say seven-minute walk south of Wall Street, down Broadway. If you've ever happened to have uh, come to New York and seen the famous bull of Wall Street, this is just immediately uh, south of that on Broadway, but not everyone makes it down there. The building itself, I'll talk about really quickly. Basically, it uh, was built at the beginning of the 20th century to house the uh, customs agency or the U.S. Customs Service. Specifically, it was constructed between 1900 and 1907 on property that was purchased explicitly for the purpose um, of building a, a customs house. The federal government held a competition, about 20 different architects submitted proposals, and the winner was a guy by the name of Cass Gilbert, who's one of the um, more famous architects in New York City's history. He had um, trained with the firm McKim, Mead & White, uh, another very famous architectural firm uh, near and dear to our hearts, since it, that was the firm that designed Columbia University's campus, actually. Um, Cass Gilbert... Uh, had his own firm at this point in time. He designed many notable buildings, including the Woolworth Building, um, the famous skyscraper built in 1913 to be the headquarters 
of Wohler's Five and Dime Empire. Um, and it's sort of um, always an amazing juxtaposition and, and very insightful into this period of New York City's architectural history when you consider the fact that the Customs House is built you know, finished um, six years before the Woolworth building is finished. And, 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 these, and these are you know, two buildings that could not be more different to her, um, architecturally. So it was just a very um, exciting, tumultuous time in, in the architectural history of the city where you had all different kinds of styles being used simultaneously. If you have been to the Supreme Court building in Washington, D.C., you also will know Cass Gilbert's work. And the Supreme Court building is in a much more similar style to the U.S. Customs House. It is a kind of neoclassical style we call Beaux-Arts that is associated with a movement known as the City Beautiful movement. And this was a movement at the turn of the century that emphasized basically better living through architecture. So the idea was America is this um, burgeoning empire. I believe Sarah and I have talked about this on on other podcasts um, when we talked about um, the history of, um, for example, the Frick Museum sort of emerges from the same moment that you've got these emerging American cities, you've got sort of a sense of greater wealth, of America's greater political importance on a global scale, we're becoming an empire of our own, and we think that we should have architecture to match, um, that sort of, you know, expresses to the world visually our, our power, basically. It also had a secondary function, which is to educate the citizens of America that the very wealthy elite were going to Europe and doing that grand tour that, again, Sarah and I have mentioned, where um, Americans, young, wealthy Americans would be exposed to the best that European culture had to offer. But then they would come back home and, you know, there were all these immigrants and there were all these um, lower class people who didn't have that same education or exposure. And um, they were associated with criminal activity and just generally being sort of rude and, and ill-behaved. And the idea was, and it's sort of incredible to think about it, um, but you know, people very literally talked about building pretty buildings that would inspire people to sort of act better in the street, um, that people would conduct themselves in a more civil fashion if they were surrounded by, by amazing works of beauty. That kind of reminds me of, of how during Prohibition, some um, entrepreneurs set up water fountains, thinking that if people had access to clean water, they wouldn't drink alcohol as much. Right. Not sure how successful of a venture that actually was, but... Yeah, there's a sort of a fundamental misunderstanding here about the sources of like alcoholism or, you know, criminality. But anyway... There, there is a little bit of something, or there is a little bit of a logic, I guess, to this idea of the the city beautiful movement. So the Beaux Arts style, or um, you know, beautiful art, um, it it comes from the name of the school, the Ecole de Beaux Arts in France, which is where generations of French artists were trained to um, paint and to sculpt in the manner of the ancient Greeks and Romans. So that sort of you know uh, classical idea of copying from nature and of um, not just copying from nature, but actually of taking um, the best parts that were available to you and combining them to make an ideal vision. So, you know, not just painting the landscape as you see it, but as it should be, not just painting the woman as you see her in your studio, but as she should be if she was, you know, a goddess or perfect. So this Beaux-Arts style um, you see here at the Customs House in the use of symmetry, in the use of columns, it has this very stately demeanor and it looks like it could be in sort of any you know European capital. 
But rather than talk about the architecture, what I really want to focus on is the sculpture. That The reason I love the Customs House, like I said, is one of my favorite ex- ways to experience public sculpture here in New York. So in the very front of the building, there are four monumental over-life-sized sculptures. And these were made by the artist Daniel Chester French, who um, is someone of the same stature as Cass Gilbert, a very famous sculptor who was responsible for some of the most important sculptures of the late 19th and early 20th century in America. The most well-known of French's sculptures is probably the monumental sculpture of Abraham Lincoln at the Lincoln Memorial. He made the the four sculptures at the base of the customs house. And these are four allegorical figures. So again, we've talked about the notion of allegory before. So they are four women, and these women represent, they symbolize the four great civ- human civilizations of commerce as they were sort of thought to be in the early 20th century. And so these are um, America, Europe, Africa, and Asia. So these are all ladies, just like Lady Liberty symbolizes the U.S. These are female figures who represent these entire continents. And of course, you can imagine that there are certain ideas, there are certain stereotypes, there are certain um, sort of prejudices that are embedded in these four sculptures. So you'll notice that the two sculptures immediately um, flanking the entrance, there's a grand staircase that goes up to the front. So the two sculptures immediately franking the entrance are, of course, the two sort of, quote unquote, most important of the four. And these would be America, duh, obviously. And then the civilization to which America owed everything, which is, of course, Europe. The two figures are differentiated from each other. It's very easy to figure out who's who. Um, And in fact, this is true of all four if you look closely. Europe is uh, designated by the crown. And of course... Um, that crown is there specifically to emphasize that America is like Europe in every way, except that we threw the crown off, right? That we are the first, you know, republic since the ancient Greeks and Romans. Europe is seated very regally in this chair. She looks incredibly commanding and powerful, but she's also kind of laid down back in a way like she's very comfortably seated like you can tell she's been sitting in basically this throne for a while behind her you see the the bow of a ship and of course this is the ship with which Europe colonized the world to the left of the entrance is America and America is sort of similar um, to Europe but she is in a much more dynamic and active pose and of course this is because America now whereas Europe um, you know has been in control for a very long time America now is about to it almost literally looks sort of jump out of her chair to lead the world um, you know, jump out of her chair onto the world stage. On America's lap is a bunch of stalks of uh, corn and wheat that represent the bountiful natural resources of America's heartland that sort of drive America's economy. Behind her is a Native American in a headdress. And so this is interesting because the presence of that figure, um, I don't think it's so much about acknowledging the people that America literally sort of like pushed to the background. I think it's more about sort of authenticating um, America's claim that like the native stand behind, you know, the, the very obviously white colonizer here, that they've sort of joined forces with her, um, but also um, sort of willingly, you know, stood back and let her, you know, the, the white colonizer sort of come to the front to lead the charge into the future. The other two figures on either end 
the, uh, represent the two quote-unquote exotic civilizations of Africa and Asia. So Africa you see to the far right and she's sleeping. Why? According to the European perspective, the heyday of African civilization was the ancient Egyptians. It was thousands of years ago. And so basically it's this incredibly problematic idea that Africa really hasn't done anything good or interesting in a long time. So she's basically taking a nap, right? Um, so she is uh, napping with one arm resting on the head of a sphinx and one arm resting on the head of a lion. So these are attributes that identify her in sort of the same way that um, the attributes would identify saints on Gothic cathedrals. And then to the far left, you have Asia. And this is another very problematic representation. Asia is sitting very sternly, uh, stiffly in her chair with her hands on her lap. And at her feet and just behind her are her people in chains and emaciated and sort of begging for mercy. Um, there's one figure who literally has his head, um, he, he's sort of prone on the ground, his head rest, resting on the ground, um, looks completely beaten and broken. And under Asia's feet, actually, she, she, she's like literally got her feet on a bed of human skulls. And so this represents this idea that Asia is a land that, as opposed to... Um, America, which is a land of the free and home of the brave, um, and Europe, which is the land of monarchy, that Asia is the land of tyrants, of despots, of emperors, of people who rule their people with an iron fist. While problematic, these four sculptures are actually also quite beautiful. That's one of the reasons they are problematic is because they are so beguiling and you do want to look at them and you physically look up to them and pay attention to basically the story that they're telling you. And I love to look at them and to think about this incredible contrast between the physical beauty of the carving and the physical beauty of the figures and the sort of ugly ideas that they represent. Um, I also think it's incredibly interesting to learn about the history of America and how it viewed itself and how it viewed the other places it was competing against at the beginning of the 20th century. And I love that these four sculptures are in New York and not in a place like D.C., where you would expect there to be this sort of nationalistic um, propaganda about what America is all about and what makes it special. I love that it's in New York because, of course, this is for a customs house building. So this is all about America's economic might being linked to trade. And, of course, New York, the reason it became the center of the American economy, it, the reason it became where Wall Street is, is because of its importance as a trading town. Um, that, you know, New York's first identity before it was the financial market of America was as the major place for important export activity. As I promised at the outset, um, one of the things I'm going to talk about today is the Met Museum. Um, so I'm going to talk about that now and quickly go over um, a few spaces that I find usually wow people um, when they get to see them at the Met. The first is uh, what is known as the Astor Court, and this is in the galleries for East Asian art. It's on the second floor of the north side of the museum. Formally, the um, Astor Court uh, is known as the Chinese courtyard in the style of the Ming Dynasty. Um, it's gallery number 217, and it has an adjoining reception room that's gallery 218. And it was built in 1981 as a gift of the Vincent Astor Foundation, uh, sort of an acknowledgement of his relative, Brooke Russell Astor, who actually grew up um, in China, spent part of her childhood there. 
It is a courtyard that is modeled after an actual courtyard in China that is known as the Garden of the Master of the Fishing Nets from the 17th century. And what is sort of amazing about this particular space in the Met is that it was actually constructed by Chinese craftsmen. They brought 26 of them, um, along with their own chef, over to New York City. And these craftsmen spent six months building this space using the sort of authentic traditional construction techniques um, informed by authentic traditional principles and using authentic traditional materials. So um, as the Met will tell you, an 18th century imperial kiln was actually reopened to make the ceramic tiles. The wood that's used is a very rare wood, nan wood, um, that was hand planed or carved to make the columns. They used rocks from China for the um, the rockeries, these sort of display of rocks. And these rocks are actually a big part of the garden. Um, these are known as philosopher stones. And these are stones that basically are have, have very interesting textured pitted surfaces so that philosophers can sort of sit and stare at them um, for hours and have their thoughts inspired by these. It's sort of like a Rorschach test where you sort of look at the rocks and you see different things in them and this inspires different trains of thinking. The space itself includes a, a water feature. There's a fountain that provides a very um, sort of peaceful soundtrack um, for the space. There are actual living growing plants and there is a skylight that provides light to the space. So it's this little oasis basically of nature um, in the middle of the museum and, and not enough people really know about it. It's sort of hidden away and there's some benches. So it's definitely if you need to take um, uh, get off your feet for a little bit, take a little break, it's a great place to do that. And while you're sitting there and looking around, pay attention to um, what we in America um, sort of oversimplify um, as the concept of yin and yang. Um, so throughout the space, you'll see that there are all of these very deliberate contrasts. So the contrast between um, fluid and solid, between um, organic and inorganic, between open and closed, inside and outside you sort of see these these contrasts throughout the whole space. And so a uh, fun game to play, especially if you have some children with you um, or people who perhaps are need to be diverted or entertained is to sort of see how many of these different contrasts you can identify. Moving on from there, if you swing around to the west side of the museum, um, in the American wing, you will find... Um, what is um, called the Henry R. Luce Center for the um, Study of American Art. It's in this space that we have the first example of what we call visible storage funded by the Luce Foundation. So they basically went around giving money to different museums to create visible storage, and the Met was the first one that they made or that they, they paid for. Visible storage is exactly what it sounds like. So every museum obviously has a certain number of works on view that are currently being exhibited, that are installed in the galleries, but they have a far greater number of objects that are um, stored and the Met has both on-site storage so each department at the Met has its own storage facilities its own space within the museum for storing works that aren't on view and they also have um, extra warehouses um, you know elsewhere um, but the works that are stored on site for the American wing there's all 
um, in what's called visible storage. So this is the storage facility that actually is open to the public. So most other departments, the storage um, is sort of hidden away. It's within the department's offices. It's accessible only by museum staff and, in fact, only by a certain select number of the museum staff. Um but the visible storage is, in fact, anybody can wander in, but it doesn't really look like somewhere you're, you're supposed to be, and it's sort of hard to find. And basically there you'll see, um, I think it's like 45 glass vitrines that house thousands upon thousands of objects. And one thing I really love about the visible storage is that is the way that it's ordered, that rather than being sort of spaced and, and clustered according to artist or chronology or theme, they're just clustered by type. So they'll just be like a whole wall of grandfather clocks and then a whole vitrine of chairs and then a whole vitrine of porcelain. And so this encourages what we call a a sort of purely formal response to the work of art where you're not really considering its historical context. You're not worried about when it was made or who made it or who used it. It's really just about the, the object itself. What kind of object is it? What does it look like? And it's a great way to sort of compare objects and to think about their differences so you know again to go back to the grandfather clock example it's like here's a wall of every grandfather clock that the met owns that's not currently on view and seeing them all together helps you appreciate the nuances of the differences that you know some artisans like to use this kind of wood versus that kind of wood or they have these kinds of figures painted on it versus those kinds of figures and it really gives you an appreciation for the aesthetic choice that was made in the production of these objects and that includes a whole bunch of paintings as well that are hung um, in the visible storage area. Yeah, the the American Wing Visible Storage is one of my absolute favorite places in the museum as well and I think it also provides a great counterpoint to the to the gallery spaces. I think Many museum go- goers kind of take for granted that the even the permanent exhibitions, these are curated spaces. They're set up to tell particular narratives. But in, in the visible storage, it, it, on the other hand, it's it allows you to kind of envision how you might set up a, a, a space, how you might curate an encyclopedic collection of objects. Would you pick this painting and this clock and and you know this cup or this goblet to go together in a particular space? And that's that's something that I really like envisioning when I visit that part of that that part of the museum. That's such a good point. That you know, visible storage allows you to see objects liberated from the agenda of the curators. Exactly. That the objects speak for themselves, and and that because of that you get to have your own sort of uh, response to them and imagine your own groupings. I really like that. Yeah. The last space I'm going to talk about at the Met, um, these are called the Reitzman Galleries for French Decorative Arts. The Reitzman Galleries are a series of rooms that are under the purview of the department at the Met that's in charge of European sculpture and decorative arts. And normally when you think of decorative arts, right, you're thinking of, you know, um, sort of useful objects, things like um, candlesticks and porcelain plates. And normally the way these things are exhibited is they're in vitrines, right, sort of like glass cases. And you look in and you see them and, you know, if you have patience, you sit and you look at the details and you appreciate that. Maybe you appreciate the craftsmanship. Um, But what I love about the Reitzman Galleries is that it actually lets you see how the objects would have been used in their original context. Um, So um, it's sort of similar, I guess, to the way we view paintings now, where we go into this bare room and there's nothing in it and there's just, you know, paintings spaced every few feet along the wall. 
if we're talking about, you know, let's say European paintings um, from the Renaissance to the 19th century, that's not how those paintings would have been experienced originally at all, right? I mean, they would have been hung in people's homes, you know, in contrast with different textures and fabrics and patterns and colors, and they would have been in dialogue with each other. And, you know, they just would have been lived with in this very... Um, uh, you know, uh, sort of mundane way and not isolated like these, you know, um, like erratic objects on the wall that that are sort of divorced from reality, basically. So in the Reitzman galleries, you see a large amount of the collection of decorative arts, but sort of in its original uh, mode. So they actually have uh, recreations of entire rooms. And in some cases, these rooms actually were bought wholesale by the Met. So they would, you know, uh, say, for example, there's a, a building, an apartment building in Paris that was going to be destroyed, you know, to make way for something new or that the room was old fashioned, was going to be renovated. So they just like buy the entire space. And so this would include, you know, the rugs on the floor, the paneling, you know, the fabric panelings on the walls, the chandeliers hanging from the ceiling. And um, so you really get a sense of the totality of the space, how the decorative objects would have been put together to make up a room. So some of these rooms are like the original rooms themselves. Some of them are sort of recreations of what the rooms would look like, having combined a bunch of objects of roughly the same period from different sources. The benefactors and the Reitzman family, they were sort of famous collectors of um, European objects from roughly the 17th, 18th century. And uh, it really just is like entering a time machine, basically. They did a big renovation a couple of years ago, back in 2007. Um, and in fact, one of the people who played a hand in the renovation of the galleries was an opera designer, this guy, Pat Patrick Kinmouth. And so uh, the whole space was sort of conceived of as a kind of like theatrical presentation. So even the lighting, right, is, is important in this space. So um, there's one room where the lighting appears to sort of be afternoon light that's coming in through the curtains on the side of a room. And there's there's no other lighting in the space. So it sort of seems like you've just sort of peeked into, um, you know, an empty room that, you know, everybody's gone and, and it, you've got this afternoon light coming in. And it's like a sort of a, a moment frozen in time, as this uh, critic in The New York Times sort of pointed out. Um, there's another room that's uh, actually a number of the rooms are, are lit very dimly on purpose and it's not simply to sort of you know preserve the objects um, from you know the the damage of of light it's because that's actually how these rooms would have looked originally they would have been dimmed so that the effect of the candlelight would be very dramatic and that you would see the light being reflected off of all these surfaces, um, whether it's, you know, the gilded panels on the walls or the silver candlestick or the, you know, the candelabra, the chandeliers, whatever it was, right? So the the spaces themselves had this like very dramatic sense of lighting. And so the Met has actually recreated that for us, again, to help us understand how these objects would have been viewed and used originally rather than placing them in some sort of artificial context. The Reitzman Galleries are a great segue, actually, into the final place I want to mention, which is the Demolition Depot. Uh, and this is a, a place on 125th Street, East 125th Street in Harlem, uh, between 2nd and 3rd Avenues. This is an architectural salvage store, and it contains an, a really unbelievable plethora 
of New York City's material history through these different architectural fragments, pieces of buildings that had been rescued from buildings being demolished. Architectural salvage stores like the Demolition Depot can be found uh, pretty much anywhere um, and are really great places places to visit if you're at all interested in vintage architecture, design, repurposing of objects, all that kind of stuff. And that's something that my mom likes to do. So I've, I've been to my share of architectural salvage stores. In cities like New York, these are places that TV and film and theater people will often frequent in order to buy pieces to furnish sets or to build sets. The the architectural salvage trade really emerged in the United States and in England in the first half of the 20th century, but the idea of repur- repurposing architectural elements goes back, you know, to antiquity. We have examples like with the Parthenon where um, the original structure Actually, I can't remember if it was the original structure. The second structure was destroyed by the Persians, and then they used uh, the, the the Athenians used fragments that had been left over in constructing the new space. These are objects that we refer to as spolia. So, in this this burgeoning trade in architectural salvaging in the um, early part of the twentieth century, you have wealthy families buying up light fixtures, paneling, molding in order to create period rooms like Tina just talked about. A a, a great example of this is uh, William Randolph Hearst, who was known as the great accumulator. um, And he bought tons of architectural salvage uh, for his mansion in San Simeon uh, in in California. And this you see sort of represented in, if you've ever seen uh, Citizen Kane, which is basically a fictionalized uh, uh, account of Hearst. And the the movie features at different points the, the map Massive number of objects that, that he kind of collects or even hoards. There are still some major sort of hoity-toity firms that deal in really high-end um, salvage. There's one called J. Faux and Company in Paris, which is the company that actually worked a lot with the Reitzmans to bring together their period rooms, which are at the Met. And so going to the Demolition Depot is really like wandering around kind of a free museum um, in one in which you could actually purchase items, although the things there are, are quite expensive. My favorite part of it is is the garden. Um, so if you go into the back of the building, uh, it feels like an architectural graveyard. There's there's fountains that are, that are not in use. There's portals from these um, grand apartment buildings, different ornamental elements, grills, subway signs, just all this kind of stuff lined up basically like headstones it's like walking through Père Lachaise in in Paris you have all these all these architectural fragments that are so close to each other and there's so much to discover um, as as you walk through uh, the building itself there's I think there's three or four stories one is all bathroom fixtures so there are toilets and bathtubs and sinks and you know one is light fixtures and it's just there's there's you could spend hours in there if you're into that type of thing but I think it's a it's a good 
a good example to end our uh, discussion of different New York City landmarks or monuments or, or places that that really sort of capture our imaginations because we're so used to um, spending time in in museums and in in cultural institutions that are devoted to preserving these kind of art- artifacts of the city in which we live. And this is an example of a place that sort of has rescued things that were going to be demolished now that they then try to sell them for a profit but still it's it's an opportunity to, an opportunity to see items that probably wouldn't end up in a place like the Met um, but are still so central to or have been so central to the life of of the people who live in New York City we hope that you've enjoyed hearing about some of our favorite spots in New York off the beaten path as always you can find out more about the spaces that we mention by going to our website www.arthistory.today and looking at our blog post for this episode or you can go to facebook we're facebook.com slash art history today and um, we will have links up there also feel free to follow us on twitter to give us your feedback either either there or on facebook Um, maybe you want to tell us about your favorite spots off the beaten path on twitter you can find us at twitter.com slash arthisttoday a-r-t-h-i-s-t-t-o-d-a-y